I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and to open to the book of Revelation. Tonight we will be in Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7 is where we find ourselves this Wednesday evening in our adult Bible study as we continue our walk through this final and significant and important book. Why don't we look to the Lord and ask for his help as we come to study it tonight. Father in heaven, we come to you as we've sung. We seek to quiet our souls before you and before your word. And we're in a book that is the capstone of the Bible, the last book that you have given, delivered to your servant John while on the Isle of Patmos. The final of the 66 books, ultimately comprising the one book that you have delivered to us. We admit, Lord, there are sections in this book that are challenging for us. Much feeds into the book of Revelation. We come tonight in humility, asking for your help, that as we walk through this text in an ultimate sense, you would be our teacher tonight. Minister the truth from this chapter to our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Revelation chapter 7 If you are taking notes this evening, you can entitle this study tonight, The First Interlude. The First Interlude. Thinking of that makes me think of the word intermission. Maybe you've had the opportunity to go and enjoy theatrical productions. Maybe even the opportunity to go see something on Broadway. Uh, I admit I have seen a few. I enjoy some. Perhaps you have as well. Typically, there comes that point in the course of the play or the production where there's uh, the pause, an interlude, or an intermission, where a series of events have taken place. There's a pause. Usually, it seems, for the crew to change the production set and get everything in line. Naturally, at a good breaking point, people can get up, walk about, do whatever they need to do, If they've been so gripped by what they've seen, maybe make a a beeline out into the lobby to buy some souvenirs, head back, take a seat. The the intermission will be completed. Well, tonight, in a somewhat related way, we come to a, a chapter in this study where a lot has taken place before. Uh, some significant things have happened in the prior chapter, chapter 6, very intense. We'll walk through them in just a moment. But when we come to chapter 7, there's a little bit of a respite, a little bit of a pause. For where we are tonight, it would be helpful to take a moment and review what we've covered thus far in Revelation. Again, this is the last book in the New Testament, the last book of the Old and New Testament. I said in my prayer uh, that this is the capstone of Revelation. In other words, everything in the Old Testament, everything in the New Testament, like lots of streams and tributaries, all feed, all funnel together and culminate and climax in this final book. That means there's a lot before Revelation that helps feed into the way we interpret and understand things, not just in the New Testament, but also back in the Old Testament. It would be helpful for us to just recap where we've been. You remember chapter 1, the beginning of Revelation. John on the Isle of Patmos, he's in late age. He's the last surviving apostle. He is caught up and has this unbelievable vision where he's commanded to write down the things that he sees. And how back in chapter 1, as he first sees this vision of the exalted, glorified, majestic Christ, he is struggling and grasping with all vocabulary to try to write down and record what it is he sees. 
Okay, I think I mentioned a couple of times ago when I taught, Revelation is a helpful book for us studying today in the world where we are dominated by digital images. Revelation is very graphic. It is very image-oriented. John sees that at the very beginning. Then you move into chapters 2 and 3, the next major division in the book, the things which are, where you remember uh, he is to write, and there are these letters delivered to the churches there in Asia Minor, uh, writing about the Lord of the church, Christ himself, what it is that he sees, what it is that he observes within each one of these congregations. After walking through those, we come to chapter 4 and 5, where before we launch into the major section of Revelation, we're caught up in chapter 4, again, another vision, where everything is oriented around the throne. All looking at, all gazing upon the one who sits upon the throne, and all around him, Angelic figures, redeemed figures, all there praising God the Father. You then move into chapter 5, and there's this scene of the Lamb, the only one worthy to take the scroll and to break its seal and to begin to unravel what is within. And then, beginning in chapter 6, really all the way through chapter 18, Quite a number of chapters, right? Chapter 6 through 18, the focus upon this unique period, unlike any period that has come before, this period of seven years known as the tribulation. Again, you remember from the previous studies, there's another way that we can refer to this. Uh, Going back to the book of Daniel, to Daniel chapter 9, you have the 70 weeks, and there's the different way that that's described, Uh, the weeks that lead up to the Messiah, uh, uh, the weeks that um, uh, even lead up to when Israel's called out of exile, they go back to Jerusalem, they're able to rebuild the walls and the temple, and you add up the years, and you come to this last week, the 70th week, seven years that we would submit has not yet occurred. But it will occur looking into the future, whenever that might be. And that's what is under the microscope of chapters 6 through 18. By the way, uh, you see that up there on the screen. Uh, there, There might be another slide. Steve, are you able to go forward? Maybe. Here we go. This just helps us all out. Adoration, Jesus is glorified in heaven. Tribulation, you see, judgment on the earth, chapter 6 through 18. It's going to be a while before we get to chapter 19, the second coming, when Christ returns. Chapter 20, he sets up his millennial kingdom. Ultimately, that's the breakdown. Uh, We have another slide, maybe move forward. Here's a further, we'll go back one, further breakdown of what chapter 6 through 18 look like. Phase 1, chapter 6, that's where we were, the prior studies with Pastor Hardy. Again, uh, there are, there's this ultimate scroll that has seven seals on it. The Lamb opens, and each seal signifies a different form of judgment that will take place upon the earth in this seven-year period known as the tribulation. If you remember from the prior study, uh, the first seal, it's the sign of false peace. Do we have that up on the PowerPoint? Maybe. But, uh, full disclosure, I didn't create a new PowerPoint for tonight, so if you're hanging with bated breath, I'm sorry to disappoint you. The outline tonight will be quite simple. First seal, false peace. Second seal, violent war. Third seal, catastrophic famine over the entire earth. Fourth seal, widespread death. The fifth seal in chapter 6, those martyrs 
before the Lord, crying out, praying, asking when God will act, leading into the sixth seal, the irrational fear that comes upon all the people. For our purposes, if you look in your Bible to chapter 6, the very last verse, verse 17, or amidst this great judgment, the people on the earth, the earth dwellers, signifying these unbelievers. Back to verse 16, really. They say to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. They ask this question, who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? Who is it that is able to stand and endure the great judgment that's taking place on the earth? Well, isn't it great when a question is asked that we can then immediately answer? Chapter 7 answers that question for us. In this interlude, the first interlude, a little bit of a respite between the judgment that's taking place. We'll even say a little bit of a pause before in chapter 8, the seventh seal is opened, which to let you know that that's then going to introduce with the seventh seal, then we're going to walk through judgments known as the trumpet judgments. And then after that, there are introduced the bowl judgments. But before we get to any of that, asking the question, who is able to stand? We focus our attention upon chapter 7. And listen, this might be some new territory tonight. I think it would be helpful for us to read through the entirety of the chapter. Then we'll circle back and walk through it as it is written to us. All right? So chapter 7, so we hear the entirety of it, and then we'll walk through it. Revelation 7, beginning in verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. One hundred and 44,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. 
and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? Where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they're before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to the springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Revelation 7. The interlude, the first interlude. What is taking place in this chapter? As I said, it's the answer to that last verse of chapter 6. Who's able to endure? Who's able to stand? We come to chapter 6. The focus is upon two groups. Here's our outline for tonight. We'll give them as we see them in the course of the study. The first group that we are drawn to look at and see, we'll label it this. The numbered missionaries. The numbered missionaries. Verses 1 through 8. As we saw in verse 1, we're clued in by that familiar phrase, after this, that there's progression, the scene shifts, the sixth seal is complete, we then move forward as the judgment is taking place upon the earth, and the focus turns now to protection for those who would know the Lord and would be faithful. Protection for believers who were on the earth during the tribulation. Now, I need to clarify, as has been taught prior in this study, not that the group here upon the earth comprises the church. We would submit the church has already been caught up and taken up into the air, into heaven with the Lord. By that familiar term that you know, the rapture. They're not mentioned, really, uh, in chapter 6 through chapter 19 upon the earth. The reason for that silence, we would submit, because they're not there on the earth. Again, that unique body, the church. Not to say that there aren't believers. We're going to get there in just a moment. That helps us understand a little bit of what's taking place. Again, not that what's happening here is read back to some prior time, but with that opening verse and that clue after this, there's progression. We're moving forward. There's a sequence of events taking place here. Now, as that sequence is happening... A unique thing occurs first. John looks and he sees there are four angels, it says, standing at the four corners of the earth. Not to trip anybody up. This isn't support for something that seems to have kind of resurfaced in popularity, uh, that the earth is flat. And if you see people, I mean, you can find people on YouTube going on and on for hours making their arguments, saying that everything with NASA and going to the moon is a big hoax. If that's where you're at tonight, well, 
not sure how to help you. We'll love you and we'll pray for you. Uh, I have a good book I can recommend to you about Apollo 8 and how, yes, they did go to the moon and around the moon, and then with 11, they landed on the moon. But anyway, beside the point. This is simply a figure of speech, like that of a compass, north, south, east, west, the four corners of the earth. But really, to look at what it is that they're doing, you have these four angels charged in this unique way of holding back the four winds of the earth. That these winds and the angels, it's associated with a form of God's judgment, and that these angels momentarily are holding back these winds. Uh, Henry Morris, a biblical commentator, he likens this to uh, like the earth's engine. And that these four angels bring it all to a halt. And if that's going to happen, he writes, it's going to affect the winds, breezes, waves, clouds in the sky, you name it. When I was thinking through this, it made me think maybe of the, the eye of a hurricane. You have the intensity of the hurricane, and then the eye passes through. It's as if there's a bit of respite and pause before soon things pick back up intensely. Similarly, things are going to pick back up intensely in the upcoming chapter. But for a moment, there's this brief pause where they hold back the wind. Why are they doing that? Well, verse 2 tells us now there's another angel. And not to read too much into that, because some have, the term another tells us of like kind, another being that is angelic steps in he arises and ascends from the rising of the sun can you know what direction does the sun rise in the east so from John's vantage point as he sees this it's as if he looks to the east he sees this fifth angel rise up in that direction Again, interestingly, where John's located, uh, as he sees this angel rise in the east, he takes this all in. And this fifth angel, it says, has the seal of the living God. What is that? Well, the term takes us back to the ancient world where someone in authority would have their seal, usually on a ring, that they would stamp And as they would stamp, say, a document, it would indicate authenticity, it would indicate ownership, it would prove something is official, sometimes even a signal for protection and security. Well, it's as if this angel possessing this seal belonging to none other than the living God, again, the living God, the one true God, he enters into this vision he then cries out to the four other angels. And what is it that he says? Verse 3. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Bondservants, your translation might say slave. That's a bit more accurate those belonging to the Lord, those who are redeemed and are his. That this angel cries out and says, hold your horses. Hold back the wind until we are able to mark and seal on the forehead those who are the bondservants of the Lord. takes us back, we think, has something like this happened prior in Scripture? Well, there's uh, maybe a little bit of a parallel example of this all the way back in Ezekiel chapter 9. We're there when it, it describes the glory of God that is slowly departing the temple and how the glory of God will then depart away and out of Jerusalem, signifying God's judgment on the nation of Israel back at that time. 
that as the glory of God departs, as Ezekiel beholds this sight, the glory of God, uh, God himself speaks to this figure, the man clothed in linen, that he's to go throughout the city and mark on the forehead those who sigh and groan over the abominations that are taking place. That's Ezekiel 9.4. As if judgment's about to occur in the city, but those who are grieved over what's taking place, those who are the Lord's own, they're to be marked, they're to be sealed, they're to be spared. Similarly, this angel communicates to the other four that there are these individuals who are to be sealed and protected. Now, what is it that they are to be sealed and protected from? We would submit all the judgment that's taking place. That God's judgment that through these seals and then the trumpets and then the bowls, all that's going to be poured out, that's uh, being poured out upon the earth primarily on unbelievers. But these individuals are to be spared from that, protected and sealed. That they would survive, we think, then live and continue into the period known as the millennium. Why on the forehead? Well, it would be common for soldiers or even religious followers to receive a mark like that. It would be obvious, it would be clear uh, to whom they belonged. Is it a literal mark? I don't know. We'll figure that out one day. But we can ask, okay, who are these individuals? Well, I told you the uh, numbered missionaries. Now their identity is revealed. Verse 4. I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Maybe you've heard this term before, the 144,000. Well, we read in the account, as that number's given, and then it's detailed thoroughly, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel. Maybe the question on some of your minds might be, are we to take this number literally? And we would suggest, sorry, not just suggest, we would submit, yes, we ought to take it literally. In fact, I would even say in the course of study, those who would say that this is to be taken symbolically, the argumentation for it wasn't entirely convincing. It's as if, if you arrive at this already assuming that these numbers are to be taken symbolically, well, if you assume it, you don't necessarily have to prove it. And it seemed as if lots of commentators essentially did just that, saying it's symbolic. Why? Because it, it has to be symbolic. Uh, it's symbolic because it can't be literal. And they would say because you have the number 12 squared, 12 times 12 times 1,000, so it must be symbolic. simplifying a bit, but it honestly it wasn't really entirely convincing. No, they're detailed. 12,000 from each tribe. 144,000 all together. To quote the commentator Robert Thomas, if this is taken symbolically, no number in the book can be taken literally. As if, what warrant do we have to suddenly say that this is a symbolic group? Might it be rounded? Uh, possibly. But we do believe that it's literally 144,000 individuals. And who are they? Well, they're tied to the nation of Israel. Therefore, 144,000 of the nation of Israel, 12,000 from each tribe. And they're sealed and they're marked all to be protected. 
And again, as it says, the sons of Israel, the normal Old Testament and New Testament usage of that term speaks of physical descendants of Abraham. An ethnic identity that they are from the nation of Israel. I think John, with this vision, is being quite clear here. And we should take him at his term and and try to set aside any presupposition that we might bring to the text. Let's just let the text speak to us. Now, who are they? Again, we said from the nation of Israel. And we read through the list. We will submit this. It is hard to understand the exact order of the tribes listed. Again, we can see Judah's listed first because from Judah, there's the prominence and the uniqueness that the Messiah came. We know that. Reuben was the firstborn, but because of his sin, uh, there were consequences to that all the way back in the book of Genesis. So Judah gets the place of prominence, then Reuben, and then you see all of them listed there. You look closely, and if you remember back to the the sons and ultimately the tribes, you'll notice that Dan is omitted from this list. Why is that? Possibly because Dan was the first tribe to get into idolatry, wicked idolatry, in the book of Judges, Judges 18, and it's as if they are exempted from this unique group and the unique opportunity that this group has. Who then steps into their place? Well, we did read of Manasseh, one of the faithful sons of Joseph. Joshua 17, verses 16 through 18, when they go into the promised land, uh, Manasseh, because of his faithfulness, uh, he would receive a double portion We'll also submit uh, the listing of these tribes. If you look through all of your Bible and all through the Old Testament, they are often listed in many different ways and in different order, at least 18 different ways. Why do we bring all of that up? Well, we may not know the exact ordering and why they're listed that way, But what is clear, they're all from the nation of Israel. Again, ethnic terms speaking of uh, the people whom God made promises to, beginning with Abraham and the nation that would come from him. Going into this, there is a lot. Uh, We could point you to Romans 9 through 11 and how at the end of Romans 11, we get the triumphant note that though the nation of Israel Uh, disobeyed and was not faithful to her Old Testament mission, God hasn't set her aside and abandoned her. There's a future for this nation. And how you come to the end of Romans 11, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. Well, part of that relates to the identity of this group. We point to you as well, and we'll bring it up again in Zechariah chapter 12, where it describes how the nation of Israel will turn and look on him whom they pierced, and they'll mourn and nationally repent, finally recognizing the Messiah for who he is. When is that going to take place? Likely at the end of this tribulation period, but a good portion of it, even the first fruits of it, are this group here, the 144,000. Again, from the tribes, they're sealed. Sealed to be protected. Sealed to be marked out. Sealed to be preserved from the judgment that's being poured out. Again, judgment unlike anything that's come before in the Bible. We could ask, why is this happening to them? And what purpose do they play in this time? They are sealed and they're preserved 
in the midst of the judgment on unbelievers so that they will be faithful missionaries, to use that term, going about on the earth proclaiming Christ and the gospel. And evidently, this group, if they were saved before the tribulation took place, can we submit, they would have already be raptured up into heaven. So this is a group of Jewish individuals who were alive. They live into the period of the tribulation. And at some point, perhaps early in the tribulation, this incredible salvation revival begins to take place and many of them are saved and then 144,000 uniquely marked out and sealed, they then are given this task to go and to be faithful witnesses for the Lord. Okay, that's, that's exciting. That's even encouraging. And going back to Romans 9 through 11, to know that God is not yet done with the nation of Israel. He hasn't abandoned them. That there are promises made all the way back to Abraham that in an ultimate sense, many of them have not been entirely fulfilled. We're still waiting for that fulfillment. And much of that is beginning to take place in this time. So the numbered missionaries... They are Jewish individuals who have been saved and this large, large quantity, 144,000. I'll admit, I, I thought for a moment, you know me, you know I enjoy college football. Uh, some of the stadiums for college football, my own team, the Buckeyes, the Horseshoe, holds over 100,000 I believe in America, the largest college football stadium, uh, Beaver Stadium, Penn State fans, if you're out there tonight, holds close to 110,000. Massive number of people. And to kind of picture all those in that stadium and yet more set apart, sealed, preserved, all as faithful witnesses for the Lord. That's exciting. Then the scene continues. There's more progression. We come now to the second group. We've seen the uh, numbered missionaries. The second group, we'll label it this, the innumerable multitude. The numbered missionaries, now we come to the innumerable multitude. Verse 9, again, after these things, bit of a sequence, I looked and behold, a term that's meant to get our attention as it got John's attention, a great multitude which no one could count from every tri nation, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. What's going on? Who is this group? Well, the scene shifts from the earth where the 144,000 are. And again, we'll see them again in chapter 14. We'll comment maybe more on them in a minute. But after looking upon them on the earth... John then looks up into heaven around the throne and he sees there this great multitude. Now we've already seen this scene in heaven. Going back to chapter 4 and to chapter 5. There are these figures, the 24 elders. There are the living creatures there are those uh, with white robes, 
fact, back in chapter 6, we heard of those with the white robes, the martyrs beneath the throne. Then he looks and he sees this great multitude, seemingly now another distinct group, a big group. No one could count. A diverse group. Every nation, tribes, peoples, and tongues. In other words, Gentiles. Perhaps some Jews are part of this as well. They're clothed in white robes, signifying purity, holiness, righteousness. Palm branches are in their hands. Something associated with joy and with victory. Verse 10 tells us they cry out with a loud voice saying, what's their worship song? Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What is going on here? And who is this group that is so vast John can't count the full number of them. Well, it made me think, I have a book in my library. It's an old book that has been out of print for a few years. book originally written in the 1750s, and it was expanded in the 1800s. The title of the book Historical Collections of Accounts of Revival. What is this book about? Well, it was first written by a friend of George Whitfield, a man by the name of John Gillies, where he, with his knowledge of church history, traced all of the unique times where, in an unusual way, many people were converted. And again, we distinguish not the term revivalism, not something that's manufactured and whipping people up into a frenzy, but when people use the ordinary means of preaching God's word, they turn to the Lord in prayer, how you study church history and there are these times where in an unusual blessing, in a very focused way, Many people are converted and they turn to the Lord. Think of the Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards preaching the sermon, Sinners in the Hand of, the ang- in, of an Angry God. A sermon that he had preached before, but something about the time he preaches it at the church there in Enfield, Connecticut. Suddenly, God turns many people to himself. You could take time to look in the 1800s, something known as the Ulster Revival in Scotland, where many people were saved and converted. Also in the 1800s, there was an event in New York City where many individuals were converted. Many businessmen were converted in an unusual way. Or We could go back a little over 100 years ago, of all places, to what's present-day Pyongyang, North Korea. About 100 years ago, there many Koreans were converted and turned to the Lord. Again, it's so encouraging to walk through and think about those unique periods. You could borrow the book and read through it. But none of these events compare to what's taking place in the midst of this tribulation. This great multitude that is so vast that John has a hard time beginning to even count them. And again, from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and tongues, these are individuals, praise God, who have been saved during this intense period of the tribulation. So where do you see that? Hang with me. It's later in the text. They're praising the Lord, crying out, giving glory 
salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Again, helpful for us to know in heaven things are theocentric and Christocentric. All attention, all worship is centered upon what God has done in Christ. And they're there with their brilliant white robes, shining white robes. And it helps us to see how they're clothed in these robes because a number of them, we were, they were revealed and given to us earlier in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. given to each one of them was a white robe. They were those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony. Simply stated, as this tribulation takes place, and even as these 144,000 are saved and then sealed, and they begin to be witnesses to the Lord as his judgment is poured out on unbelievers, that likely as a result of their witnessing, many people come to faith in the Lord. Many, to such an extent, John can't even begin to count them. To quote John MacArthur here, The group in view here is part of that earlier group of martyred believers. As the tribulation wears on, the number of martyrs will increase, as will the number of believers who die naturally or violently, eventually accumulating into the vast, uncountable multitude in this passage. Again, at first, John doesn't know who they are. Again, as they're worshiping the Lord, as the rest of the figures there fall on their faces before God and worship Him and praise Him, verse 12, amen, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. That says one of the elders comes to John and asks him, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? Where have they come from? John says back, my Lord, just being uh, gracious in his words, showing respect to this figure. You know, as if John doesn't know, he's taking in the vision. He asks for some insight And this elder says to John in verse 14, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Can you see that there? They are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Important for us to understand the grammar here. It's communicated in a tense, speaking that it is a process, not something that is a one-time event, like the rapture. That is a one-time event. But this here, speaking of a process, they are the ones who, in this process, come out of the great tribulation. They're alive during the tribulation. As it begins, they're unbelievers, and at some point and in some way, likely by means of the testimony of the numbered missionaries, they then come to the Lord, they're saved, and then tragically and even triumphantly, many of them are martyred And they come up out of this tribulation. Again, to quote John MacArthur, putting it succinctly, they lived into it, speaking of the tribulation, were redeemed during it, and have now come out of it through death by violence, natural causes, and martyrdom. 
you were to take time to go back to Matthew 24 in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, he makes very clear in Matthew 24, verses 12 through 14, that in that time during the tribulation, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed. And if the gospel is being proclaimed, then people will be converted. And in this time, a, a revival unlike anything that has been seen. You have these, as some people have referred to them, tribulation saints who come out of the great tribulation. Again, they're clothed in white robes and they're washed and they're white. They've been cleansed all by means of the blood of the Lamb. The tents even for them having clothed and them having washed that's speaking of it, that it has already taken place, looking back to when they were alive on earth before they died, that that's when they were saved. Because they were saved, they're clothed. Again, signifying their, their holiness and, and their righteousness, the righteousness that they've received by faith from Christ himself. And we might wonder, okay, what are they doing? Well, we saw earlier, verse 10 and 11 and 12, they're praising God, focused on his salvation, that all of these individuals are bowing on their faces before the throne, which which I think that's significant. And you, you have these angelic figures who haven't committed sin. You have these saved individuals whose sins have been paid for. And all of them, including these sinless angels, they get down on their faces when they're in the presence of God around the throne and around the Lamb. We simply pause and say, maybe that ought to reorient the way we think about worship and even when we gather as a church. There's no hint here of anything seeker-sensitive, but all God-centered, all worshiping. Jump back to verse 15. They're before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in his temple. Again, the scene here is in heaven. Presently, there is this heavenly temple, and the throne is there, and they're worshiping. Again, the scene is not the ultimate, final new heavens and new earth. That will come in Revelation 21 and 22. But this is presently the scene in heaven as the tribulation is taking place. And as they're there, they are quite active, quite busy serving the Lord. What else would they want to do? This is their greatest joy and delight. They've been created by God. They've been saved by God. They're now in his presence day and night serving him. And as they do that, how precious is this? He who sits on the throne, it says he'll spread his tabernacle over them. Rich imagery. Again, the term tabernacle takes us back to the Old Testament where a holy God came and dwelt in the tabernacle amongst the sinful people. And now this scene in heaven It's God covering them with his presence, indicating his love and his care and protection of them. Again, they they likely endured intense judgment, many of them martyred for their profession of faith. But now around the throne, the Lord God spreads his tabernacle over them. No one can attack them. No one can accuse them. 
You know, we love to sing the hymn now when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. If that's true now, how much more when we're there around him in heaven? The blessings continue for this group in heaven. Verse 16, they'll hunger no longer. They'll thirst no more. Again, if they have just lived in this period of tribulation with all the cosmic and earth-wide events taking place, many of them, not only by martyrdom, but many of them likely have died by natural causes with how intense that's been. But now before the Lord, they have no need. They're cared for perfectly. And the Lord God satisfies them. Not only that, it says, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. And drawing upon the world in the Middle East there, the intense heat from the hot sun and the scorching heat from the the burning hot winds that would often blow in. Think of, again, what it would be like to be in the wilderness or a desert. We heard that just recently. But there around the throne, no trouble, no distress. Why? Verse 17. The Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And friend, think of that. I mean, we love Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then we see this shepherd comes down and incarnates himself, where Jesus proclaims in John 10, I am the good shepherd. Fast forward to 1 Peter 5, he's seen as also the chief shepherd, the ultimate pastor of his people. And now in heaven, these saved this innumerable multitude, along with Old Testament saints, along with New Testament church believers who are already there in his presence, that he now in heaven provides the ultimate pastoral care, never letting anyone down, always meeting every need, He'll guide them to the springs of the water of life. Again, perfect shepherding. And look at the very end of verse 17. Again, a preview of what's declared triumphantly at the end of Revelation. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Say law, pause, and meditate. Again, the intensity of what they've walked through. With all else taking place on the earth, the rise of the figure, the Antichrist, and those around him going about proclaiming a false gospel, deceiving so many. And those who are faithful to the Lord on the receiving end of their attack and their persecution. And all that it is that they endure, many of them then entering into the Lord's presence, surely hearing, well done, good and faithful slave. And all hurt and all sorrow and all need, the Lord wipes away. Again, not an angel doing this. God himself wiping away every tear from their eyes. Why? There's no pain. There's no sorrow. There's no suffering. No sin, no sickness, and no death. 
what a place that will be. And again, things are going to pick up in the next chapter. The seventh seal is going to be broken. And then we're going to be introduced to the seven trumpets and then the seven bold judgments and all the more intense they're going to be. All while great wickedness increases on the earth. But at least now there is this interlude as John sees this great crowd in heaven, those who come out of the great tribulation. You know, as we walk through this, there, there are so many things and so many details that we do wrestle trying to understand rightly. And we do the best we can with the text in front of us. But at least as we walk through this, let's remember in the course of all the study of the timing of all of this, that in all of it, we ought to keep God at the front and center and his lamb. Not only that, walking through this, again, lest it become too speculative, think of the exhortation the apostle Peter gives in 2 Peter 3.11. That there, after having recounted what's going to happen in the future, the last things, far from being speculative, he says, what kind of people ought you be? all holiness. And as we study this, that should have an effect upon us now in the present to seek the Lord, to be witnesses for Him. Maybe tonight we'll end as we think of those last words from chapter 7, that God will wipe every tear from their eyes. You know, I recognize tonight there are some parents as well as some young children here Walking through that makes me think of a sermon J.C. Ryle once gave. A very sweet sermon that can be boiled down to this, that essentially there's three places. There's a place where there's often tears and often crying. What place is that? The place that you and I presently live. Life on this earth. Because of sin and death that enters in because of sin, there's often sadness, sickness, sorrow, and suffering. We get hurt, we feel pain, we're filled with tears. We do something wrong, we're sad, we cry. We experience death or someone we love dies, and from that we get sad. And we do well to remember there is a place where there is often crying. But then Ryle said, but oh, we need to be aware of a place where there's always crying. Again, the tears now direct us that there is a place where constantly, for all of eternity, the Bible says there will be weeping, weeping and gnashing of teeth, a real place called hell where God will punish all who don't turn to him. And in that place of hell, as sin is punished for all of eternity, for the rest of time, there will always be crying. And Ralph said, oh, think about that. And is that where you want to go? Surely not. But is that all that there is? Ralph says, oh, there's more. There's a third place. A place where there are no more tears. No more crying. A place where there is no crying at all. What place is that? Well, we saw a glimpse of it tonight. That place is called heaven. Why? Because God is there with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a real place where you and I can go one day where he will, as we enter in, he'll wipe away whatever remaining tears there are because in his presence there's fullness of joy. Maximum happiness. Where there's no sin, suffering, sorrow, death. No more tears. Maybe tonight as we think of that place where there are no tears, 
And then we remember that right now we live in a place where there are, are often tears. Parents, maybe you can talk even with your children about that place where there's always tears and always crying. And how the only way that they will not go there or the only way that you and I won't go there and the only way that we can go to the place where there are no more tears is by turning to and believing in and crying out to that lamb that we read tonight who gave his life to die on the cross to pay for the sins of his people. That he died so you and I don't have to die. The life that we were supposed to live that we've failed he lived. Father, we thank you for our study tonight, this first interlude amidst the great tribulation that is to come in the future. We look at these events, we're amazed at what you will do, how you will preserve and restore your people, the nation of Israel, and you'll use them in a great way. And in this time, how you'll save and convert so many, so many from all ethnic groups, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. We think of what will take place there, the worship. We long to be there and to experience that. We thank you for the promises of what it will be like and how you will act there. But until we are there, Lord, help us now in the present to live and to be the people you call us to be. Help us even to tuck away that simple truth of these three places. And maybe when in our own eyes there are tears, may that help us meditate upon the place where you are where there will be no more crying. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is such a great Savior. We pray all of this tonight in his name.